0: Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay. I'm a part of the team here. And um, you came on a great day. We are, uh, for the next few weeks, I'll talk more about this in a second. But for the next few weeks, we're going to explore the ideas that matter most to us here at our church. Um, so to begin, I want to begin by um, potentially dividing the room. Let me show you an image here. This is a raging debate in the last, okay, Wow. There's already tension. Uh, Raging debate in recent years about the goat in basketball. You all know what goat stands for. It's not the animal. It's the greatest of all time. Is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron? So um, if you unequivocally, you're like, come on, dude, don't be ridiculous. It's Jordan. Just raise your hand. Okay, thank you. I said raise your hand, not yell obscenities at me. Okay, and everybody under the age of 30 who did not see MJ play and you think it's LeBron, raise your hand. Anyone, does anyone think LeBron? Whoa, take it easy, everyone. Take it easy. Here's the reality, you are all wrong because the greatest of all time is Steph Curry. Let's get real. And and that one, I'm a diehard Warriors fan, been since the late 80s, like run TMC, and then the down years, I went through the exile, through the wilderness, all of that. But that was also a trick, I just fooled all of you, because Curry is not the greatest of all time, you guys, it's Michael Jordan, come on, let's just be honest, six rings, the greatest of all time. Now, when I was developing this teaching, when I was writing this teaching, I was, coming, I was so proud of myself because I found these images myself. And I was in bed and my wife, uh, my beautiful wife, Jenny, reminded me, Jay, not everyone cares about basketball. So let's do another round. Uh, greatest female pop vocalist of all time. Is it Celine or Mariah? Wow, take it easy. There is so much anger in this room. How many of you guys would say Celine Dion? Whoa, okay, decent amount. You love the Titanic soundtrack or whatever. How many of you would say Mariah? Okay, not okay. everybody's wrong because the greatest pop vocalist of all time is Whitney Houston, everyone. <laughs> Let's get real, okay? Bodyguard soundtrack, okay? All right. Um, everyone under the age of 25 right now is mad that I did not show Taylor Swift <laughs> up here. I understand. Did anyone go to the Taylor Swift concert, by the way? Anybody? Yeah, Faith went, several of you. Most of you are embarrassed because you don't want to admit you spent half of your life savings going to a Taylor Swift concert. I understand. Okay, goat debates. The greatest of all time debates are really interesting. They're fascinating. They're really fun, right? And um, it's interesting, though, because I actually think it's a misnomer. The phrase greatest of all time is a misnomer. Because what we're actually saying, like in reality, what we're actually saying is not the greatest of all time. What we're actually saying is the greatest so far. That's what we're debating, right? Because in the 1950s, I'm going back to basketball now, so half of the room's going to check out or whatever. In the 1950s, inarguably... That unanimously, what people said in the 50s was that the greatest basketball player of all time was a man named George Mikan. How many of you know George Mikan? Wow. Like half a dozen of you. That's way more than I expected. Because by the time we got to the 60s and 70s, it was pretty unanimous. Bill Russell is the greatest basketball player of all time. And then we get to the 70s and 80s, and the conversation changes. And at that point, Kareem Abdul Jabbar is the greatest basketball player of all time. And now, today, here we are, and it's like unanimous Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player of all time. But fast forward 30 years from now, there is a chance. Now, for us living in the present, it feels impossible, but there is a chance that 30 years from now, or 50 years from now, or 100 years from now, We will look back on Michael Jordan, or people will look back on Michael Jordan the way you and I look back on George Mikan. Like, who? There's a chance. Because Michael Jordan is the greatest so far, not the greatest of all time. Why? Because to say someone is the greatest of all time is an impossibility. Because we live in the present. There is no way for us to know. That Whitney Houston will continue to be the greatest female vocalist of all time. Who knows, right? Who knows? Greatest of all time is a misnomer. It is always the greatest so far. Because we are locked into the present. We cannot know the future. But what if you could know with certainty in the present that one thing was indeed the greatest both now And for all of time, not just in basketball or in pop music, but in all of life. What if you could know that there was one definitive reality that is currently the greatest and will forever be the greatest? What if you could know? This first century writer, Paul, who wrote two-thirds of what we call the New Testament, Um, writes in a letter to the early Christians in an ancient city called Corinth. We'll explore that city further in detail next Sunday. But in an ancient city called Corinth, there are these new Christians, a new Christian church um, coming to be. And he writes this beautiful letter to them. And what we call the 13th chapter of that letter It's one of the most commonly quoted chapters at weddings these days. It's the love chapter. But in this chapter, he makes a claim that is both bold and audacious, and I have come to believe, because of my own life, that it's true. Let me read it to you, just a part of it. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 11 to 13. Paul says this. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then, on the future day, he, when he says then, he's talking about like the end of all time. The end of the human story as we currently know it. Then, at the end of all things, we shall see face to face. Now in the present I know in part, but then at the end of the human story, I shall know fully, even as I am in the present fully known. And now, not just in the present, but at the end of all things, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest, the GOAT, the greatest of all time, of all of these, Is love. The greatest of these is love. Paul is making an audacious goat statement here. This is a nice little verse. Again, we hear it recited at weddings all of the time. But we have to understand what Paul is saying here is basically the greatest reality for all of time in the entire human story comes down to this it's love. Love is the greatest, which is why for the next several weeks, we are going to explore this brand new, in this brand new series, The Greatest, Why Love Matters Most. Specifically, we are going to journey through 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll jump around to the teachings of Jesus throughout the Gospels as well. And starting next Sunday, we will explore three key ways in which, three specific directions in which love moves, a life of love with God A life of love with one another, and a life of love toward our neighbors, our city, and our world. Now, the reason we're going to do this, lots of reasons, but one, um, if you're newer to our church, you should know that these three loves, loving God, loving one another, and loving our neighbors, these three loves are central to who we are as a church. Our church, Westgate Church, exists to be and to be a part of the story of making Disciples of Jesus. Disciple is a fancy word that essentially means a student, or better yet, an apprentice. Someone who learns from their master and then does what their master does. That's why our church exists. Now we believe that the discipleship to Jesus, following Jesus, doing the stuff Jesus did, The way of Jesus, we believe, simply put, is the way of love. And specifically, love toward God, one another, and our neighbors. Let me show you, just in Jesus' own words, Mark chapter 12, what does Jesus say? He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And in John 13, what does Jesus say? Love one another. Your brothers and your sisters and the family of God. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Then finally in Matthew 22, what does Jesus say? Love your neighbor as yourself. These three loves are central to the Christian life because it's Jesus who calls us to love. We don't love because love feels good. We don't love because pop culture tells us that love is the highest value. We don't love because we don't want to be alone forever or whatever. All of these different versions of love that get posited out there in the world. We love, followers of Jesus love, because Jesus calls us to love. And loving the way that Jesus calls us to love begins by receiving the love of God expressed through Jesus. So that's where we're going to begin today. The next three weeks we will talk about what it looks like to live a life of love toward God and to live a life of love toward one another in the church family and to live a life of love toward our neighbors, our city, and our world. We'll explore those ideas in detail in the next few weeks. But today we have to begin because we cannot be be a people of love unless we are a people who have received love. We begin there. And receiving the love of God begins with the recognition that we are fully known by God. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. What does Paul say? Now, today, right now in the present, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then, in the future, at the end of all things, then we shall see face to face. We'll see it all. Now, in the present, I only know in part. But then, at the end of all things, I shall know fully, and here's what Paul does. It's really interesting. I shall know fully, even as I am in the present. That's present tense. As I am right now, fully known. We are fully known. And Paul is talking about the love of God here. We are fully known by God. Not someday, but today. Right now, the late, great Tim Keller has this fantastic line in one of his books. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Makes sense, right? If someone says they love you but you don't sense that this person really knows you, then it's superficial. You begin to question, well, like, what what is it? What version of me is it that they really love? Because they don't really know me. So it's nice, but it's, it's superficial, it's thin, it's exterior. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Now, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. If someone really does know you, and at the end of it all, they look to you and they say, oh my gosh, now that I really know you, no thanks. I mean, that is the greatest fear in life, right? But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. I think many of us, regardless of where we are on the sort of spiritual journey, whether we've been devotedly, passionately um, following Jesus for many years, or we're on the early end of things, we're just sort of exploring faith. First of all, no matter where you are on that spectrum, Um, There's a place for you here. We are thrilled and grateful you're here. And we want to come alongside you to take the necessary steps closer and closer um, to the heart of God. But here's the thing. No matter where we are on that spectrum, I think many of us, not all of us, but I think many of us, struggle. When we're really honest with ourselves, we struggle with the idea of being loved, like genuinely being loved. And specifically, I think some of us struggle with the idea of being loved by God, which there's all sorts of complexity with that idea. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. But I think in some ways, we struggle with the idea of being loved by God, for some of us, because we feel unknown. We have lived most of our lives feeling unseen and unnoticed and isolated and alone. Maybe that's you. Maybe you walk through life. And maybe even here at this church, a church that I love, a church that I believe in, but I'm also fully aware we've got all of our shortcomings and all of our flaws because our church is a family of men and women who are broken and sinful and flawed and frail. Maybe even here you've come to our church in like a last-ditch effort To find a community that might actually see you, notice you, recognize you, and know you, and you've been disappointed. Maybe you find yourself showing up week after week, standing in the lobby, trying to figure out this whole thing called the church. And everyone else seems to have these beautiful relationships, but here you are, uncomfortable and alone, just waiting to be seen. And maybe we have failed you. And if we have, I am sorry. We've got to do better. But here's the thing. Even if you have spent your entire life feeling unseen, unnoticed, isolated, and alone, I want you to know today, God sees you. You don't have to believe me, but it is true. God sees you, and he knows you. God sees you. No matter how alone you feel right now, God sees you. His eyes are fixed on you in ways that you cannot imagine. He sees your brokenness. He sees your pain. He sees your struggle. He sees how alone you feel. And he is whispering to you today, you are not alone. Psalm 139, the psalmist says this, God, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? God himself says in Jeremiah chapter 1, God himself says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You know why I know God sees you? in your loneliness, and your isolation? Because what I believe is that God saw you before you ever even were. I believe God sees you because I believe in Imago Dei, the image of God, that every human on the planet is made in love in the image of a God who imagined them, dreamt them up in his divine creative mind before you ever breathed your first breath. If you feel alone and unnoticed and unseen, if people have forgotten you, if you have lived your entire life feeling like you were constantly pushed out to the margins, first, I am sorry. It's so sad how broken people treat other broken people. I am guilty of this as well, but I want you to know God has not forgotten you. He sees you. He knows you. And he loves you. Now there are others of us in this room who struggle with the idea that God, know, God loves us, not because we feel unseen, not because we feel unknown, but because we fear being known. There's guilt and shame and sin and brokenness and regret in our present and in our past. There's a part of us that has been, we've been living life for many years, in many cases, hiding, covering up, unable and unwilling and too afraid to actually open ourselves up to the world. And we find ourselves faking it till we make it. I'll just sort of fake it like I feel deep, meaningful love in my life. But in those quiet moments when you are alone, you realize no one really knows you because you are afraid of being exposed. If that's you today, I want you to know God sees you. He knows you. He sees every inch of your brokenness, He sees every inch of your sin and your shame and your guilt. And he loves you anyways. You know how I know? Because he was willing to let his son die so that every inch of your sin and your shame and your guilt and your brokenness would no longer have power over you. This is why in 1 John chapter 1, we read that if we confess our sins, if we expose our Ourselves, If we do the hard work of unveiling our brokenness to God and to one another in trusted, loving relationship, then he, God, is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins. Romans chapter 8, what do we read? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God knows you. He see, there is no hiding from him. But he doesn't condemn you. He says, come. The way way has been paved for you to come through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. This is one of the reasons why love really is the greatest, why it matters the most. Because when love is properly understood, first and foremost, as an undeserved, unmerited gift we receive from God, then love, God's love, has the power to free us From isolation and loneliness, from guilt and shame, and from sin itself. Knowing that we are loved, that we are seen and known and forgiven and wanted, is the greatest truth. It's the greatest thing to know. And without it, without knowing that, that you are seen and known and loved. If you do not know that, then there is no amount of knowledge, no depth of insight or wealth of wisdom that actually matters. There are brilliant men and and women in this room in a number of ways. Many of you have started your own business. You are parenting children. You are navigating tricky relationships. You have PhDs, like on and on. You are innovating. In this room, some of you are creating the future, literally creating the future. There is brilliance in this room, but here's the deal. If you do not have this one bit of knowledge that you are loved, then no other knowledge matters. This is the greatest, most important, most crucial thing to know. One theologian, Alan Johnson, puts it this way. To know that we are known by God personally, savingly, completely, is the greatest knowledge. Surpassing all other knowledge as the light of our sun surpasses all other lights. N.T. Wright says, love is not our duty, it is our destiny. God loves you, and that's where we are headed. That is life. It is the truth that matters most. So let me put up those words one more time, 1 Corinthians 13. I am fully known. I just want to give you 10 seconds to stare at those words. No matter who you are, where you're from, what your story is, stare at that truth. You are fully known. God knows you. And he loves you anyways. This is one of the reasons why Lisa talked about next steps. You know, sometimes it feels like at church we're just giving you announcements to do things. Let me just be very clear. The reason we invite you to take a next step is that we believe the truth of God has to be embodied. And one of the best ways to experience the embodied reality that we are known and loved by God is to take the risk of being known and loved by one another. This is why we invite you to take next steps. So wherever you are on your journey, we would invite you, take a deeper step into community. Whether it's a life group or a mid-sized group, care and counseling, serving, whatever it might be. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me just read the passage again. What does Paul say? When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child... But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then in the future we shall see face to face. Now I only know in part, but then at the end of all things I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. It's really interesting. Paul uses the metaphor of maturing from childhood to adulthood and connects it to the recognition that what we experience in the present is only a glimpse of the fullness that awaits us in the future, right? My son, who is five, his name's Simon, uh, recently he's been asking Jenny and I for a pet, and specifically for a pet turtle, which is weird. I don't know why, but he wants a pet turtle. I have high hopes that he will be in the NBA someday, so this is very deflating to me that he wants a very slow animal. Um, But uh, anyways... So what Jenny and I have told him is, okay, Simon, if you, every day for like a month or something, if you will just clean the playroom without us asking, and every night, most nights, he sleeps in his own bed, and then in the middle of the night, he'll somehow make it, like I'll hear the pitter-patter of his feet down the hallway, and he'll make his way into our bedroom. Every night this happens. So we've told him, if you just clean your room every day without us having to ask you, and if you will just stay in your bed the entire night, Every night for like a month, we will get you a pet turtle. And every time we say that, he's like, okay, I'm going to do it. But what happens at the end of the day before bed? And this room's a mess. What happens? He's like, Simon, please clean the playroom. He's like, oh, man. He's like, dude, pet turtle, man. He's like, okay, right? And what happens in the middle of the night? He's tired, he's groggy, he wakes up, it's dark. He's not thinking like, you know what, i got to have the discipline and the foresight, delayed gratification. If I just stay in this bed, if I do it every night for like 28 more days, I get a turtle. So I'm just going to stay right here. That does not happen. He wakes up in the middle of the night, he's like, Mom, Dad. (laughs) He just runs to our room, right? What is that? That's childhood. I don't blame him. That's childhood. Delayed gratification is really hard, especially when we're young, because it's difficult to see past the present, especially when we're young. But it's true even as we grow into adulthood. And what my son needs most for his pet turtle, what he see, what he needs most, are several things. One, he needs faith, right? He needs faith in me. He needs faith that when Dad says something, that he when Dad promises something, he needs to be able to look back on our history and say, you know what? I can believe in Dad. I can trust in Dad. That's faith. I trust in him because what dad has proved, like past history, right? Past performance, track record. When dad commits something, then he shows up and he fulfills it. That's faith. I trust dad because when I look back on our history, he's always faithful. He also needs hope, right? He needs hope. Okay, I really want a turtle. I don't have a turtle. Dad has told me, and dad is faithful, he's told me, if I just... If I do these things, I will have a turtle. That's hope. I rely on the promise of my father that he will get me that turtle. But the only way that faith and hope actually work is if they are anchored in love. Simon can only have faith and hope in me if he believes that I love him. Love is the only thing strong enough to sustain faith and hope. One theologian, William Barclay, puts it this way, "Faith without love is cold and love and hope without love is grim." Love is the fire which kindles faith and it is the light which turns hope into certainty. Let me show you this next image. This is why Paul says love is the greatest. If faith is trusting in what God has done. That's what faith is. It is trusting in what God has done. I believe in him. He is faithful to me because when I look back on my history, he has been faithful and I believe he will, he will not stop being faithful. That's faith. And hope is relying on what God will do. And hope is propelled by faith, right? If God had no track record, if he had no past performance, if, he, if in our histories God had proven himself to be unfaithful, there would be no hope. So we begin with faith. God has been faithful. I trust him because he's proven himself trustworthy. Therefore, I have hope. I can rely on his promise for me in the future because he is faithful. You see how that works, yes? But both faith and hope... They disappear, they disintegrate if they are not built on the foundation of love. That God is who he says he is and his unchanging, timeless posture toward us is love. If you look back on your track record with God and you realize, yeah, he's shown himself to be faithful. He's popped up now and then and done the stuff that he said he will do. And if it's built sort of on hope, like, okay, you know, because I, I think he's able. I think he's strong enough. I think he can make it happen. You have a little bit of hope. But if you question love, if you are not certain that his posture toward you is love, then faith and hope begin to disintegrate. They begin to crumble. This is, you know, the, it's not a recent phenomenon, but people talk about it these days quite a bit. The idea of deconstructing faith, deconstruction in the church. So much of it comes down to um, a crumbling of our understanding, awareness of God's love. Now, that's an oversimplification, but that is so much of what's at the root of the movement. God loves you. And that is his unchanging timeless posture toward you this is why paul concludes first corinthians 13 now these three remain faith hope and love but the greatest of these is love i'm going to invite mark and the team to come back up we're going to sing and respond here together in a moment i um i want to show you the image of a, of a man, this is uh, Victor Frankl, some of you know that name, we've quoted him here before, Victor Frankl was not a Christian, um, he was Jewish, uh, Orthodox Jew, and Victor Frankl is considered one of the greatest psychiatrists, psychologists of the 20th century, um, he wrote a, a famous thin little book that I would recommend to everybody called Man's Search for Meaning, if you have not read that book, um, put that on your list. But Frankl, before he was a world-renowned psychiatrist, uh, was a prisoner at Auschwitz during World War II. Um, Shortly before he was imprisoned as a Jewish um, prisoner at Auschwitz by the Nazis, um, he had married his sweetheart, a young woman named Tilly. And Tilly and Victor had been married for nine months when they were both arrested by the Nazis and sent to two separate internment camps. Viktor Frankl, along with his mother and his brother, were sent to Auschwitz, and then his beloved Tilly was sent to a different internment camp, Nazi camp, called Bergen-Belsen. And while at Auschwitz, Frankl witnessed his mother and his brother both executed. And he had no idea what had happened to his wife, Tilly, because, again, she was at Bergen-Belsen, not at Auschwitz. And long story short, Tilly eventually died in Bergen-Belsen. And Frankel writes about this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he talks about the psychology of how he survived um, Auschwitz. And at one point, he starts talking about his love for his wife, Tilly. He talks about how he was losing faith in humanity and he was losing hope for a future, but he discovered that one thing remained inside of him. Even as he was losing faith, even as he was losing hope, he realized that love remained. And he says this, I did not know whether my wife was alive and I had no means of finding out, but nothing could touch the strength of my love, my thoughts, and the image of my beloved. Even while living through the unimaginable suffering of a Nazi prison camp, as his faith was wavering and hope was diminishing, the strength of love remained. And this is why love is the greatest. Because for a man like Victor Frankl, even his human capacity to love could break the boundaries of time and space and circumstances and situations and even suffering. So how much more so the love of God? How much more so can the love that God has for you, a God who has defeated death itself, how much more so can his love break the boundaries of time and space and circumstances and situations and even suffering? How much more so can God's love break the boundaries of our anxiety and our uncertainty, our guilt, our shame, our isolation, and our loneliness? This is why love is the greatest. Because it can free us from all that binds us. So here's what I want to do. I want to read for us Paul's words in another letter, Romans chapter 8. And I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and then we'll sing together. We'll sing and worship together. But I want to read these words for you as a truth over us, each and every one of us in this room. Again, even if you have lived your entire life feeling unseen, or if you fear being known, if you struggle with the sense that God loves you, struggle with the sense that you are loved beyond imagination. I want to read these words for each and every one of us. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us, will be able to separate you from the love of God, the love he has for you, expressed through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. As God's beloved people, let's stand and sing and respond together.